This podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Let's face it, your code is going to have errors. Even code written by an amazing, outstanding, meticulous developer such as you. I know. But when bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error, uptime, and cron monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform, saving you time and cash. Sustain listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention Sustain when signing up, and they'll apply the discount to your account. No credit card required. Use Honey Badger. It'll make your DevOps awesome. Hello, and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Who is the current most important anthropological voice in open source sustenance? And how can we get her on the show? That's a bit of a lead-in to Nadia Ekbal. Say hi, Nadia. Hi. Nadia is here today calling from San Francisco, where she lives and works for Substack. And we have her on the show because she has a new book out, which we're very excited to talk about on this podcast today. As far as who we are, there's me. Hello, everyone. And then we have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. Justin Dorfman. Hey, Ron. Gunner. Hello. All right. So, Nadia, what's the title of the book? What's it about? Tell us why you wrote it. All right. The title of the book is Working in Public. It's about... Well, it's not a lot of things. Um, it's, it's a deep dive, uh, mostly anthropological, also a little bit economic, into open source developers and communities and how they all work and what that has to tell us about the future of the internet at large. Why'd you start it? Uh, what what happened? <laughs> well, there's a lot of ways to answer that, I guess. But I've been digging around to the world of open source for the past five years or so. And so it kind of got to the point where... I felt like I was like writing blog posts and doing interviews or conference talks and things like that. And sort of like sharing bits of my thoughts as they came along the way. But like the last really long thing I'd written was at the very beginning of that whole journey, the Roads and Bridges report that I had published. And so like, I kind of got to the point over the course of a bunch of years where I was like, all right, my views on all these things have changed or evolved, but like, I don't really have one coherent place where I put it all. And so Writing a book was basically the ultimate documentation project where it was just like, all right, I need to get all these thoughts down. I need to put them all in place. Did not really expect it to turn into a book. I kind of just thought it might be like a report similar to the one I did before, but kind of just like hit the point where it made sense to find a publisher. Now, let me ask you a question because I remember reading Roads and Bridges and it kind of blew my mind as well as many others. What was your expectations of writing that? Because usually papers don't really get that much, I don't know, recognition, or maybe I'm just too close to the campfire, but what were your expectations? That's the question. I try to have like zero expectations for everything I write because it's better for my happiness. I just think if I just frame it in my head as I'm writing it because I care about this thing. And so, yeah, I mean, with that report, I did not expect any, because I'd been like blogging a little bit before the report officially came out. And I think I like, I didn't even like officially tweet about the report. I think I just like buried it at the bottom of maybe like a newsletter update or something. I was like, oh, by the way, I also wrote this really long thing, but like, you know, don't bother. <laughs> and so like, it is funny to kind of look back on that and, and realize like that was maybe one of like the more enduring things that I'd written 
which actually helped convince me that I should write a book as well, because there's just something to be said for having something a little bit more long form that like pulls all these different concepts together in one place that just often does last longer than a blog post that you write. And yeah, same with this book. I have tried to just like have zero expectations and be like, I'm writing it because I want to write it and it's out there and it's done. But I've been really happy with the response so far. Before we get too much into the book, I'd like to bring up, you've been in the community, the open source community for about five years, right? I guess actively engaged in exploring the dynamics of open source. Does that sound about right? Yeah. And I, I kind of bookmark it around five years because I recently started a new job at Substack at the end of November last year. And I kind of felt like this book was sort of, I think, probably the last thing I'm going to say in open source. And now I want to find new things to explore. But yeah, I mean, I feel like it's, it's yeah, sort of the, the end of this journey of uh, spending a lot of time looking at this stuff. That's a shame. So- it very much is a shame. I remember when I first heard about you, this is back in 2017, and this is before CodeFund shut down and all that stuff, but I remember researching you and I found this talk that you gave, and the talk was entitled Consider the Maintainer, where you essentially used the lobster reference throughout. And I think that that was the clincher for me that really made me think, I got to know this person. I got to learn more about this person. And over the course of the last five years, you've essentially created a whole a legacy of documentation and a legacy of knowledge that very, very few people in the world have. What was your motivation behind going so deep into that? I wouldn't have said probably when I started that I wouldn't have known that I was going to spend so much time on it. I think I just like to be driven by topics I find interesting, I want to learn more about, and then I like to share what I find in public. And so it was sort of, yeah, I mean, I, I could not have really predicted the way that things turned out, but uh, I feel like I'm always just sort of guided by my curiosity, which is part of like why I don't feel like I'm at this point where like, oh, I'm never going to talk about open source again. It's just that like, you know, at, at some point, like I feel like the, the interest and in the things I'm focusing on now are directly an evolution from the time I spent in open source. And the book is almost like a little bit of a, a bridge of that of now I'm looking a lot at like newsletters and these parasocial communities that are kind of one-sided. And so much of that is really documented in the book directly of like, here are all these things that we can learn from open source and like, here's how it actually applies to other areas. And I feel like I'm kind of like looking at other areas, but it's all tied together. Yeah. I think I'm always just kind of looking to learn new stuff and then share that out. Well, it's funny because we had a guest on last week, someone who I work with, Kevin Owaki. And he called you the open source archaeologist. And I was like, you know what? That's what she is. That's really good. That's, that's actually a really good point. So I just had to bring that up. Hi, Kevin. I love that term. Because people like, are, you know, might use like the term anthropology to say like, you know, I'm looking kind of at the human side of open source. But archaeologist is so much better because it means I'm just excavating and digging around in old sites, which is awesome. Yeah, I was, it, it just described you so well, so. Okay, so there's this part in the book where you're like, if you don't think free t-shirts cause spam, trust me, it's incredible what developers will do for a t-shirt. I almost shot out my Diet Coke in my mouth. It was so funny because that's exactly what happened to me. I did a Hacktoberfest like a couple of years ago, and I have this project called Awesome JSON Datasets. It's very easy to submit something. But the problem was people were just submitting like, literally a new line and committing that. And I was like, what? This is horrible. So when you said that, I just, it just gave me the chills. I was like, oh my God, I know exactly what you're talking about. So 
Thank you for I, saying Yeah, man, I, I'm glad it resonated. I, that was one of those things where I feel like if I hadn't worked at GitHub, I would have never really fully appreciated the experience because I remember just like being with my colleagues, I'm just being so bewildered of like, just doing this for a t-shirt. Like, I mean, people were just like, I mean, doing exactly as you're saying, is submitting these sort of empty pull requests to projects. And because if you get five pull requests, you get a shirt. And, and I remember like our uh, director of marketing at the time was just like, totally bewildered by this. He's just like, is this, is this, it's for a shirt, right? It's a shirt. It's It's like five bucks, but Hey, developers, what they'll do for a t-shirt. Love that swag. Yeah. It's it's not a, it's not a shirt. It's a symbol. Right. Symbol. Ah, that's a good status symbol. Which kind of leads into a a couple things before we move on to status as a service, which you talk about at length at your book, which is awesome. I want to just quote your favorite quote, which you put in the footnote there which is if the community offers its top 10 contributors a special t-shirt as an informative reward, the users may feel honored and appreciated, even though the t-shirts have little value and therefore make more contributions in the future. What I really like about this is that it's not the Hacktoberfest approach of give a shirt to everyone who's a first-time contributor, which is how a lot of community managers have been running their communities for ages. Let's get more first-time contributors in, more people churn, and then some of them will stick. This is much more of the other side of things, where it's like, who are the people in our project who really contribute? And how can we make them feel loved? And it seems like a really good way to use what Mike McQuaid called sticker funds, where you have enough money to basically buy stickers, but not enough money to pay anyone to work on your project. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, I think I like that framing because it it reframes these external rewards instead of being essentially like bribery for people that are going to do exactly what you expect, which is to take the external reward and then like run away again. But if someone already has this other reason or motivation to be in your community and they already are dedicated, then these kinds of things can just, as you said, give people extra love and help them feel extra appreciated. But it's not like, yes, it's not like you're just bribing them. Yeah, it's less perverse incentives, I guess. Yeah, which also kind of goes to the core of what I think this book is different from Roads and Bridges. It's a lot more about what is open source communities? Why do we even use this word? Most open source is just one person who's way overloaded and then tons of extractive contributors coming in, taking their time. And we're not really thinking about open source communities in in the right way to match the actual problem. Like our map of the territory is flawed. And so part of what I think you point out really well here is, well, what would a proper map look like? If I can piggyback off of that, Richard, just uh, real quick. Nadia, it's interesting. The first book, just like Justin, I devoured your first book. And it really kind of paved the way for my passion. And I read the second book as well. And as you know, I think the majority of us or all of us on this podcast right now are co-organizers of the Sustain Summit, which is an annual conference where we meet up with some, you know, a hundred people and discuss ways that we can help define and improve open source sustainability. And you were there and part of the very first round and leading that charge in the first round as well back in 2017. I think a lot of the discussions, especially that we talked about last year, and Gunnar, I'd love to get your input on this as well. A lot of the discussions that we talked about were very much covered in detail within your most recent book, Working in Public. It seems almost definitive. When I was reading it, you know, you talk about governance, you talk about all of these different topics that are often not discussed, and it seems very definitive. The book itself seems like, honestly, it seems like the open source Bible to me. It's like the open source Bible. And 
as we're going over the sustained events and trying to build up the documentation from that, it seems like that documentation now already exists in this open source Bible. And I guess there's not really a question, but more of an observation. And if anybody else has any feedback or input on that. Well, I would start by making a historical correction to your analogy with, with respect to Nadia. I think, I think the book is the New Testament because I think Carl Fogel's producing free and open source software <laughs> would be the Old Testament. I like that. I gave him a shout out in the book. So I was like, I feel like he's really under, under read. That's I awesome. absolutely agree. But I, I, I do think that's true. In other words, I think what we're seeing happen in all of this is we're, we're working toward building a shared vocabulary of, of the universe, of, that, of this ecosystem where each project is going to have its own arcane vocabulary over time. But I think the gift of this book and others before it is really trying to pre- create common language so that we can create interoperability at levels of sustainability, community governance, and other things that are other than you know, code and API interoperability. Absolutely. That was one of the motivations of just writing the book was like, I was feeling frustrated in conversations where I'd be like, oh, like I have this like frame on this thing that I want to be able to just say in like one word, but like, I don't have a word for it yet. And then, or like, you know, a specific thing to point to. And I think that is the power of books and long form documents, which I hope like other people also write, but like, we're just creating this sort of shared reference instead of vocabulary and things that we can kind of point back to and link to. But the real work I think comes from what do we actually do with that information? And yeah, books are like the, maybe like a starting point for that. That leads to the question I was going to ask, because I really wanted to plus one, you're living without expectations because it only guarantees that you're later disappointed. But, you know, if this book leads to action, do you have thoughts about what actions you would like it to lead to on the part of readers? Well, that's a really good question. Now, that partly informed the, my choice of publisher as well. Like when I think about that, I mean, yeah. So caveat aside of primarily, I just want the joy of writing a book and kind of, and that's my, my metric is I, I finished it and I published it. That was tough. But like in thinking about, you know, who do I hope will read this and like what impacts elsewhere would I hope that it would have? I really hope that it's read by developers. I hope it's read by people that use open source and don't necessarily think about where it comes from or want to understand the topic, but like don't really have great reference points for it. I think like, especially maybe like compared to Rose and Bridges, which I felt helped facilitate some conversations within the world of open source a lot of like people that are like either open source developers themselves or like very, very close to it. I think part of the goal of having this book was brought it to a slightly wider audience. I wasn't aiming for like a New York Times bestseller, but like bringing it to an audience that's maybe like one or two concentric circles out. Straight Press is really great for that. And yeah, part of just like why I went with them was they have very deep roots in developer audiences because the company that Straight Press is part of is Straight itself, the company. And so it felt like a really natural fit. And to me, kind of like this mark of like, I really hope this is being read by practitioners themselves and not kind of just collecting dust somewhere where like no one is really aware of it. And I've definitely seen that so far in just the response we've gotten so far. Like part of it is about my work and part of it is also just about people really trusting that brand. You know, while you and Gunnar were talking, I just realized something. You recommended Gunnar to Pia for the first sustained Oh my gosh. And now he's here and you're here. And my mind is like, wow, Will the circle be unbroken. Yep. <laughs> oh, I love that. You're actually owed some commission from Gunner. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to collect my pay. Here, here. Hey, archaeologist, I've got an archaeology question for you that I don't think it's touched on directly in the book. But as someone who's been in the open source arena, goodness gracious, going on 20 years, I feel like cloud 
has in many ways, you know, both scaled use of and innovation in open source, but I also think it's undermined some of the objectives that I think are implicit in the book and explicit in what you just said. In other words, I think certainly in the nonprofit and social justice sector, the move to cloud has caused people to not care about what's behind or underneath the technology they're using in their browser. And I'm curious if you've reflected on that as a driving force, the idea that when you're not downloading, when you're not installing, the idea of a license or the idea of a piece of technology being more community created is a more abstract or removed concept. I hadn't really thought about the framing of cloud specifically, but it definitely resonates with some of the other themes that I touch on in the book. Of, I think I really wanted to start just by describing here are some of the original goals or how we thought things were going to unfold. 20 years ago, and here's what is actually happening right now. And then kind of start with that dissonance or that disparity and, and then kind of work out, okay, like given that, then where do we go from here? Because yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Like it changes the relationship that people have to piece of technology when they're more far removed from it. And it's not just cloud. I think we would say that about, yeah, just so many aspects of the development process. But it also makes sense from this macro perspective that when you reach a certain scale, then these like efficiencies start to form where people are, yeah, just trying to reduce those shared costs by not having each person bear the burden of it individually. And so I think like part of the theme of the book is just sort of saying, okay, like if that's true and we are just like in this world now, then what do we do about it? Or like, how do we understand it? And so, yeah, like I wish that people did feel closer to the technology they used but like, I think like what it will look like in the future just is going to necessarily evolve, right? Like it's hard for me to imagine, except other than sort of like the diehard fanatics, like it's hard for me to imagine people like going back to what would feel like a less efficient kind of way of being. You know, we had Matt AC from AWS on a couple of weeks ago, episode 47. And, you know, he painted this very rosy picture of Amazon and working hand in hand with Redis and, you know, all these other, you know, open source companies, so to speak. And I just found that, that interesting. Cause I, I believed him. I was like, okay, that might sound right. What do you think? Do you think that's a bunch of BS or is it like something that Amazon's turning the ship around? Without knowing too much specifically, I guess, about that circumstance. Yeah. I, I feel like depending on who you talk to, like the term open source just means so many things to different people. And so depending on who you talk to, some people from their corner of the world, things might look totally fine. And that makes sense to me. I think, again, like sort of like part of one of the goals of this book was to help break down, like, what does it mean when we say open source projects? Because it's hard to compare some of these really, really big projects to like really, really small libraries that like are being maintained by one person and don't really have those same sorts of opportunities. And so I did like a little bit like a taxonomy of that, of like different types of communities so that we can say, okay, we're talking about a federation here. And that's like, a, you know, tons of users, tons of contributors grows in a very different way from a stadium where you have like one or a few contributors and tons and tons of users. And so, yeah, I guess like short answer, I definitely believe that's true for certain corners of open source. I really wanted this book to identify why that's not true for everything we call an open source projects and how we might talk about those different types of projects and communities. And then in particular, just because it's close to my heart, shine a light on the kind of more like stadium style projects that have an individual creator or just a couple at the helm. Let's face it, your code is going to have errors. 
even code written by such an outstanding, meticulous, totally awesome developer such as you. But when bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error, uptime, and cron monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform, saving you time and cash. Honey Badger monitors and sends error alerts in real time, with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding in your code, so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go AWOL or silently fail. Go to honeybadger.io and discover how Star, Josh, and Ben created the 100% bootstrapped monitoring solution. Why is this important? Self-funding means they only answer to you, the developer, rather than a venture capital overlord. Sustained listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention Sustain when signing up, and they'll apply the discount directly to your account. No credit card required. Use Honey Badger. It'll make your DevOps awesome. I actually want to, I want to ask a question related to that. You, you state clearly that you're not really interested in open source and enterprise as being the focus of the book. It's like a whole different topic, just like money is a whole and advertising is a different topic. Although you do touch on them repeatedly. A lot of the book seems to focus on like individual creators doing great work. And that kind of goes back to what I would call the, the charismatic people, people like Henry Zhu, like Ferros. And at the end, you, you sort of end on this really great high note that there are ways to get these people money for basically being sponsored for who they are and what they produce. And I think you actually say at one point, with millions of lines of code freely available today, the focus has shifted from what developers make to who they are. So I love that framing. And I love people, for instance, like Ferros, who've done a ton of different things, right? So they've, he's made WebTorrent. He's made Spoof Mac. He's made Study Notes. I think that's the name of that website that he runs. And so he's done a lot of sort of stuff. So it's very easy to be like, okay, he's very great in doing stuff. What I'm curious about is what do we do with projects that don't have a charismatic leader where it hasn't focused on who they are, which maybe have really good documentation, which means that there isn't, say, one person who's actually able to grok the whole thing in his head and has like 75% of the commits in it. Is there any hope for those sorts of projects? Is, are they doomed to just continually wither and, and sort of run out of steam? Do you have a, an uplifting note to talk to that sort of thing? Sure. Well, I'll start with the less uplifting, <laughs> which is in any sort of, I guess, like economic paradigm, there's going to be winners and losers, depending on what that paradigm is. I might say like, you know, in the earlier paradigm of open source, individual creators lost out because they were trapped in this sort of rhetoric around, I need to get more and more contributors, but like they weren't able to get more contributors for whatever reason. So they were the ones that were kind of being like ignored and, and rolled out in like a reputation-based economy, whatever it is we're kind of going towards, but that's one of the arguments that I'm making in the book. There might be winners in that sense of, okay, maybe now the individuals are set up to thrive really well, but it's individuals who have these really visible reputations and the ones with less visible reputations are also now kind of losing out. So I guess like, I, I would maybe just like start by saying like, I, I'm not really here to like solve all the world's problems of like the way, I mean, we also see these sort of distributive effects on say Patreon or even Substack where if people are raising money for their own projects, like some people do enormously well and some people don't and like it sucks for the ones that don't. But like that's to some extent is sort of like a, a part of like just like life, I guess. So I guess like the new framing, I hope will just sort of like pop these kinds of new questions about what happens when there are creators who are less visible. 
okay, so it's all the depressing stuff. But the the reason why it's like particularly interesting in open source, I think it's a really good question, is because I think for if we're comparing them to other types of creators, most creators are by nature meant to be very, very visible. Like if you are a YouTube creator trying to get your stuff out there, like the whole point is you're trying to get a huge audience. And so if you don't yet have that huge audience, the path forward is, you know, somewhat legible to you. Whereas in open source, like people might just be using your project, but like the developers aren't really out there to do this song and dance for other people. And so like you might end up in this situation where tons of people are relying on your project, but like no one knows who you are. And uh, there is that mismatch there because like they're not trying to show off their face everywhere. It's just a project that got used a lot. And so like, how do you kind of like, I guess, reconcile that? Um, And I would put much of that responsibility on GitHub to figure out just by looking at what has worked for other platform creator relationships. It's still not super, super visible, although there are definitely improvements being made over the past few years, and I'm sure they will continue to grow. But just in terms of like, how do we get there? Like, I do think it is partly on a platform to make it really clear. Like, what are my major dependencies? What projects are majorly dependent on? I mean, you all know this just over the past couple of years, and like, I experienced this as well, is people like ask that question all the time. And it's just like, we don't have great answers. Sorry. Like there's like great data. It's like, well, then how are we ever supposed to find those projects if, if it's not clear? And like, yeah, I mean, the only way I can really think for that to become more visible is through GitHub because so much funnels through that platform. So I'm trying to offer the, like a new framing of like what it could look like if we, you know, took what we've learned from other reputation economies and kind of apply that thinking to open source. But I don't think it's a, a perfect metaphor for the reason that you're stating here. But like, if we were to start working towards that a little bit more, I think it's something that would have to become more visible through the platform itself. What's interesting to me is that I, I see your answer and I also see a, a Nadia type analysis of your answer. Because what I noticed throughout the book is that you have this very high level. Here's what's happening. I'm not trying to fix it. I'm not trying to make a product that then solves it. All I'm doing is just noticing that these are ways and buckets in which I put information and they seem to be helpful for me for understanding phenomena. So it's very anthropological, scientific view of things. Well, and, <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's okay, though. I mean, we, we all have that. I wonder, you know, what am I doing as a podcast host instead of making software? Why am I spending time here instead of building something great? So there's always some sort of cop-out eventually. But you talk a lot about GitHub, and I think GitHub's only part of the actual huge world of open source. I know that it's 97-whatever percent of all code is stored there. But you had a really great tweet from Lori Voss talking about NPM, talking to VCs. You know, like. Who uses NPM? Everyone uses NPM. Ha ha, no, but really, no. Every Fortune 500 company uses NPM. Well, then who's your model, you know, client? Every person who has a website. And it's, it's like really like, yeah, that's how tech is these days. The way I saw it as a metaphor was kind of like mycorrhizal networks or, or kind of just bacteria spreading. And you have these nodes, which are important for centerpieces, but it sort of stretches all the way through. This abstract metaphor always breaks down when I try to communicate it. And I apologize to every listener who just had to have me stumble through that. But what I wanted to convey was that I thought through this book, you did a really great job of showing the abstractions of open source without really saying what's next or what can you do? Here's a checklist to follow. What I'm curious now is that you've written this thing. You said it was kind of my take on open source. This is like the closed book for me. What are you doing at Substack that's so interesting to you following the research that you've learned in this book? Why there? Is it because it has a funny name that sort of matches one of the main problems? Like, um, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, just couldn't, couldn't stay away from the stacks. 
Yeah. I mean, so over the course of writing the book, you know, part of it started out as this documentation project for me to kind of lay down and get out of my head all the things that I kind of been thinking about, like how I think about open source. But, you know, it also kind of moves a little bit towards this, this conclusion or this saying, okay, like the reason why this book should be interesting to you, even if you don't know anything about open source, is because there are a lot of parallels between this and other online communities. And so that was a question that started for me around the time that I started writing the book at the end of 2018. And just like, I mean, we've all kind of seen like how the social web is developing over the past couple of years. And there was like all these really, really interesting new trends that are happening. And so like, I mean, literally, I remember just kind of like getting to the point where I was starting to wrap up the manuscript and getting toward the end. And I was at Protocol Labs while I wrote this book. They very generously gave me the space to be an independent researcher and to focus on it basically full time. And so I was kind of at the point where I was like, okay, I'm like wrapping up this manuscript and like, what do I want to do next? And I had thought about maybe doing like another research project in a different space, but I didn't feel ready to kind of just like make that pivot. But I actually felt like, you know, the process of writing this book has raised more questions for me than that I don't know how to answer now. And now I want to go figure out like, I need to get like my hands on the real world version of these questions so I can like start to understand them better. This is like not dissimilar, I guess, to what happened when I first started writing about open source. And then, like, I mean, when I started writing about it, I wasn't, like, employed anywhere. I had a grant from the Ford Foundation, but I was, like, a free agent that was just, like, blogging. And I, I could have taken that in a bunch of different directions, but I decided that I wanted to be at GitHub because at GitHub, I could, like, really see this stuff play out by being at the platform where open source is being built. And I did feel like spending a few years there, like, really, really shaped my views on open source because I had a lot of, like, ideas and things. And then, like, I would, you know, see them play out and be like, oh, God, that doesn't actually really work or whatever. And it just, like, forced me to, like, really think through the theory by, like, being a practitioner for a bit. And so similarly with this book, I kind of came out being like, okay, like, you know, we're at this point where the term community is now, you know, it, it started to break at the size of millions or billions of people being all shoved in the same community. That's really interesting. Um, referring to kind of like what's happening on our public social platforms and then starting to see, especially over the course of the last year or two that we've started developing other corners of the web to like mirror or parallel what's happening. And so, you know, like people are quietly spending time in group chats or they are starting newsletters or doing podcasts because there is something there that helps you, I guess, like escape a little bit from that public intense turmoil that is just sort of like, it's very different to be able to send out a newsletter versus uh, being on Twitter. And I think like both those things will continue to exist. We still will have this like very public space for people to meet new people and get ideas out there to uh, like an audience you might not even know. But it seems clear that we're also developing at the same time, these like more semi-private spaces that are around like group chats or newsletters or whatever. And so, like, I kind of came out of writing the book being like, that's really interesting. Like, you know, everyone thinks, like, social is basically done right now. Everyone just thinks we have, like, you know, Facebook and Twitter and whatever. That's it. But, like, it seems clear that, like, if these motivations are true, if I really believe what's in the book right now, which is that, like, in order to adapt, creators and all of us really are trying to find other spaces to go to that are a little bit out of the way in order to just, like, protect ourselves from this, like, massive demand at scale, then I want to be, like, on the ground floor understanding that somewhere. And so at the time I've been writing a newsletter for since really since starting, I think like my open source work. So for years, um, I had moved my newsletter over from tiny letter to Substack and just felt like, okay, like, I feel like newsletters are going to be a huge part of whatever comes next. Like, it's just like, it's poised to explode. And that was in November of last year. Um, and so I 
didn't look any to work anywhere else or whatever, but like, I mean, it came out of this feeling of like, I really want to take these interesting ideas and like learn what's happening on the ground again, like as a practitioner and, and have them be challenged. And so, yeah, I mean, I reached out to one of the co-founders and they had just raised their series A and it's still really, really small. It was just the three founders and they had hired their first employee. So I was the um, second employee that joined back in November. And uh, I was just like, I really want to work here for all these reasons. And, and I joined. So yeah, I mean, like, it's like the reason why I'm at Substack right now. And I, I feel like this year has absolutely been the year of newsletters and things. I mean, at least looking at our numbers, just like demand did end up exploding this year. Everyone is like, starting newsletter and talking about newsletters right now. And, and it's been really fun to see, well, given these things that I am thinking about with these more like one-sided communities or trying to escape, you know, just find context again, like in a smaller sort of space, like how are those things actually playing out? So that's why I'm there. Very long-winded answer. I know Substack because of you. And then I just read a book called Hate Inc. by Matt Taibbi. Mm. I think that's his name. And he has a Substack thing. And I was like, oh, wow, people are like serious journalists are like actually using this to generate revenue. So I, I was like, wow, you know, it's like you see the future like eight months in advance. I don't know why eight months, but that's it. That's how long I've been as a Zagrish. So perfect. Okay. Um, that was a total fluke. I did not wow. know that. Perfect. Yeah. No, yeah. Matt Taibbi is making a lot of money. On He's so good. Did you readers. read his, did you? Read- I have, I've read some of his Substack, but oh, um, yeah, he left his job at Rolling Stone just to strike it out. There are a lot of parallels between um, like what's interesting about understanding open source developers as individual creators and also as writers, because like, I think similarly, like writers have this thing where they're, you know, working a job at a journalistic outlet, but like they really have all this, like, like some side project or some writing project that they actually wish they could write about. They hate that they kind of have to like, you know, pitch a, a writing idea to someone else in order to get published. And so they have like their day job, but kind of dreaming of like, being able to be known for like the other stuff they're doing on the side and like same thing with open source developers, right? Like you have your day job at, as a software developer at a company, but like you have your open source projects that you actually really want to work on full-time, but you can't figure out how to get paid for that full-time. So yeah, I'm like drawing all the time from like the stuff I've spent time on in, in open source in order to understand writers and how they get paid too. Cause I think the, the proposition is really similar of like, you know, if you're a writer with an audience and you can strike it out on your own. Yeah. Well, I mean, he goes all in, like when he goes on a television show or, you know, like a, like a talk show or whatever, he has his Substack URL. I'm like, amazing. What? That's so, that's so cool. So yeah, it's anyway. full-time income. No, it's, it's, it's awesome. Uh, he's such a great writer. Anyone who's looking for a good book, Hate Inc. is great. Awesome. Well, you've convinced me. I mean, it's funny though, because when I was reading the last chapter of the book, the conclusion, and while talking to you now, I keep coming back to well, you're working on the thing you want to work on. And it's pretty easy. And I don't mean this with any sort of offense or, 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 or like critical criticism or judgment to say it's about the person and then building a community of fans. Because I feel like you've done that really, really well. Like you're, for me, the success story of how to take ideas out of your head and have other people be like, I value you as a person because of it. What I often wonder is about you know the, the curlers of the world or the the people who write low-level software projects, how do you help those who don't have the power to do that or don't have the means or are shy or aren't aware that their project is being used by everyone ever? And I think you also focus on this problem. It's just, it always strikes me that like, you're a particularly good example of how it can work really well. And I wonder, what do we do to help those who it can't? Do you have any feedback on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd say it still just comes down to, I mean, we're in such... 
I feel like people are always saying we're in the beginning stage of some other, you know, grand promise that's out on the horizon or whatever. But I really do feel that of like it's, it, subscription businesses are definitely becoming a thing, like across all verticals, not just open source, but like all sorts of creators. It's just like a thing people are talking about a lot right now. And so it's like inevitably at some point it's going to come to open source, but like open source is particularly not super well set up for it. And it's just like very new to this whole game. And so like, I think any of those feelings around, well, what do we do for people that like aren't as, as visible or don't have an audience? I think it's just like, those are issues that need to be surmounted, but will be addressed over time. And I do still kind of point back to GitHub is like, I think it is their, they should be taking that responsibility seriously. Nat Friedman tweeted that he bought a thousand copies for people at GitHub. So hopefully people oh, nice. read it. And <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's one of my goals was like, I like hope that this does read like a missive for anyone who is thinking about this and has the capability and power to be able to like build it and like think about these concepts and like hopefully, hopefully some of these ideas, uh, infect them. I, I love it. I also really like the idea of like infecting people than having them go out and do stuff. There was a, an example. I saw this with Ferros when he wrote his blog post about the NPM advertising incident where he you know started putting ads for the projects that people were installing on NPM. And then all the NPM people who were installing were like, no, this is awful. I don't want to see ads when I'm, when I'm coding. And it's like, well, I was just trying something new. And he wrote like, I'm tired of talking about open source issues. I just wanted to try something else. And I love that very hackery ethos. I know the word hacker has been denuded to the point of whatever, but I love the idea of like, let's just make stuff and see what happens. And so your podcast on religion and open source had the logo of a seed that was growing up into plants. And in the same way, I kind of view this book as another seed that Nadia is sowing in the garden of the open source world to go out there and build new things. So I'm incredibly grateful for it. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, I like I, 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 I'm totally with you on that. Like, just like it's so fun to see people just experiment with their ideas, and especially I think developers are so great at that because they love taking matters in their own hands and have the tools to be able to do so. So, yeah, who knows what's gonna come out of the next five years or so? But I think like people are constantly thinking and tinkering about this kind of stuff. Well, we'll have you on the podcast in five years to talk about what's gonna happen in the next five years because yes. we'll probably know. Given that, what are the next eight months? Or the next six months. That's right. Until that time, where can people find you? Where can people find your work? How do they follow along? How do they buy this book of yours? The book is called Working in Public, The Making and Maintenance of Open Source Software. It is available on Amazon right now. And let's see, and you can find my work. Probably the easiest way to keep in touch is on Twitter. My handle is Nayafia, N-A-Y-A-F-I-A. And from there, you can probably find all the other things. Awesome. Thank you so much. Now is unfortunately, I wish I could keep talking forever, but unfortunately the time to do Spotlight, where we shine some light on projects that either need the love or have helped us get to where we are. Gunner, what do you got for us today? I was trying to remember if this is a rerun or not. I know I had it in my head in a previous week, but I've continued to do a lot of work with the gathering for open science hardware. And I just think they're blazing some radical trails and open in trying to bring both a hardware lens to it, but also into science communities. So gosh.science, G-O-S-H dot science. Just love those folks. Love where they're going. Awesome. Thank you so much. Justin Dorfman? I'm going to say Nadia's book, but the real world version. Don't get the digital or audio. Do you have audio book? It's coming out. 
Okay. Yeah. Don't get that. Sorry. Because look at this, this cover is so unbelievably cool. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can do a sound like, you know, it's like got fabric on the front and I was blown away. I was like, wow, were you involved with the design or did they just say, Hey, this is going to, this is what's going to be. Ideas in good hands because all their, their books are absolutely beautiful. We did do one design sort of like check-in feedback kind of session where we had totally different ideas proposed. I was surprised by the end as well, uh, but very pleasantly surprised. It it turned out really well. Yeah, great job. Thanks thanks again for coming. Anyways, someone else is after me. Eric Berry? I don't know how to follow that. I'm also actually going to note your book. We didn't talk much about the contents. We did a little bit, but it would be a huge disservice not to really urge people to at least research it, get to know what's inside, because it really is the New Testament of open source. And my share that I'm going to have real quick is actually just going to be a little quote from the book. There's so many quotes that I bookmarked. I did bookmark my digital copies. So, you know, I don't know if I agree with exactly what you said. (laughs) And it's just right at the beginning, you talk, you say, uh, this book is an attempt to identify and expand upon what it means to be online today, told through the story of open source, where individual developers write code consumed by millions. Rather than maximizing participation, their work is defined by the opposite the need to filter and curate a high volume of interactions. I tried to explain why this came about and how platforms shifted the focus from online communities to solo creators. Masterful work, extremely well-written. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you. I am going to, as my spotlight, not do a single product, but instead an idea first espoused for me in Umberto Eco's essay on the anti-library. The anti-library is a library that you have at your house filled with every single book that you haven't read yet. Books you haven't read yet are more useful to you than books you have read because they may have information you don't need. And I love this concept so much. And the reason I'm bringing up on this podcast is because Nadia is one of my favorite people in the world because she reads everything all the time. And I think we should all do that all the time. No pressure. It's okay, everyone. Do read what you want. But I love people who read a lot And I think the anti-library as a concept drastically changed how I viewed my books on my shelves. And I would hope that other people would look that up and think about it and read more. So that's my spotlight today. I know that's a weird one, but it changed my life. And Ah. Nadia, what do you have? I love that. Can I actually, since we're being so liberal with our definition of what we spotlight, I've been going to riff off of yours. Um, Have you seen Brendan Schlegel's anti-libraries community? No, what? Okay. All right. I'll set it to you after this. I think it's just antilibrary.es kind of thing. But yeah, he's inspired somebody by this idea of anti-libraries and has like a community where people talk about the books they haven't read. And he has like a newsletter where he sends out the books he hasn't read, but like why he would want to read them or why he acquired them anyway. Uh, and yeah, I absolutely love it. I, I do read a, a good amount, I would say, uh, although I know people read way more than I do. But I also have like a really massive anti-library collection and it's made me feel much less guilty about all these books I haven't read because I just love looking at them and being inspired by them. And, you know, I do continue to draw from my own library to, to find the things that I want to read. But I think it's a really powerful concept and also encourage everyone to develop their own anti-library. What a great suggestion. That's anti-library with an I dot ES. Ah, thank you go. so much, Nadia. It was great having you on this podcast. Thank you. Thank For those you, thank of you, you who listened, don't stop here like go read the book because it has all the ideas we didn't get to 
and we really wanted to and we'll try later but thank you so much that's it thank you so much for having me this is really thank fun. you